I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. It is great to see you here with God's people on this Sunday morning. One of my favorite movies, I'm not a huge moviegoer, but one of my favorite movies was a movie put out several years ago, Castaway, starring Tom Hanks. Uh, he played the role of a FedEx systems engineer who, who uh, was flying on a FedEx plane. The guy's name in the movie was Chuck Nolan. And he was flying in this FedEx plane when it went down in a terrible storm over the Pacific. In fact, it crash-landed in a remote area of the South Pacific, and everyone on the plane was killed except for Tom Hanks, that is Chuck Nolan, who survived the crash. He ended up being washed up on the beach of a deserted island along with scores of FedEx packages that made it to the island with him. Uh, as he stayed there day after day, uh, he slowly began opening all of those packages uh, that were addressed to other people that FedEx was delivering, but that never made them, ended up washing up with him. Uh, he, he went through them hoping he would find something that would help him survive, make life easier for him, more comfortable for him while he was on that deserted island. However, after opening all of the packages, he held on to one that he never opened. It was a special package to him simply because on the outside of the FedEx box was stenciled a pair of angel's wings. And so for Tom Hanks, Chuck Nolan, that became a symbol of hope, uh, something he could hold on to believing that he would one day be rescued. He also made a commitment to himself that one day he would personally deliver that package uh, give it back to the person whose name was on the return label. So it became a symbol of hope for him. However, unfortunately, if you saw the movie, you know he ended up being marooned on that island for like four or five years, suffering all kinds of illnesses and injuries, wasting away to just an emaciated skeleton, basically, uh, having a horrible time, having to find his own food, try to spearfish, uh, get by, even... After a while, he got to such a point of despair that he tried to take his own life. He was unsuccessful doing that. It was just a big mess, a horrible experience. Finally, he realized that if he didn't do something, he was definitely going to die on that island. So he ended up being able to fashion a crude raft out of some debris, and he made it outside the breakers and began a journey out into the Pacific when, as had been his case all through these four years, now a horrible storm came up destroyed, practically destroyed his raft, took away his fresh water supply, and left him floating in the middle of the South Pacific Ocean in the blazing sun, dehydrated, drifting in and out of consciousness at the absolute point of death. And just when you think he's not going to make it, of course, as Hollywood does, a ship comes by and he is rescued. And when they drag him out of the water, the only thing he has with him that he is clutching is that package that has stenciled on the outside of it these angels' wings. Well, if, you, if you've seen the movie, you know that at the very end of the movie, uh, Chuck Nolan, Tom Hanks, is taking that package. He finds the address. He goes to a farmhouse. He knocks on the door, eager anticipation, giving this package back, but there's no one at home. So he ends up scrawling a little note that simply says, this package saved my life, leaves it at the door. And that's essentially with some subplots. That's essentially the end of the movie. However, some very creative person, 
came up with an alternate ending to that movie, which was later turned into a commercial and shown during the 2003 Super Bowl. I don't know if any of you saw it or not. But in that alternate ending, when, when Chuck Nolan takes the package to this house and knocks on the door, a lady actually comes to the door. And she expresses amazement, the fact that he has held on to that package for those four miserable years when he almost died, and she commends him for, for bringing it back. He turns to leave, and as he does, his curiosity overcomes him, and he turns back to the lady and he says, Ma'am, I've just got to know, can, what was in that package after all? She said, Well, let me show you. Nothing really. She opens it up said, Oh, let's see, uh, satellite phone, um, GPS locator, uh, fishing rod, a water purifier, some seeds, just silly stuff. And as I thought about that alternate ending to Castaway, it came to my mind that in many ways, that is a modern parable of life. How many of us go through life searching for things that will help us navigate life, be successful at life, find joy and fulfillment and meaning in life. And we're going through life opening all of these packages that the world has to offer us, yet neglecting to open the one thing that unlocks the secret to a life of true meaning and true purpose and true fulfillment. If you have been here these weeks, you know that we are in a journey through the book of Philippians. In a series of messages I've entitled, Life Doesn't Have to Be Perfect to Be Wonderful. And we've been focusing on just the opening two verses of this four-chapter book that are in many ways like that FedEx package with the angel's wings stenciled on the outside. These verses give us the resources we need for a wonderful life, and they are right in front of us. And yet, somehow, some way, we're reluctant to open our hearts and open our eyes and open our wills to what is true so that it becomes reality in our lives. These two opening verses, Paul gives us the fundamentals, the foundations for the Christian life. And he makes it clear that unless and until these critical biblical and theological foundations become part of the spiritual underpinning of our lives, then we have not understood the most basic elemental teachings of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And we will never be able to experience the truth of the fact that life can still be wonderful even if it's not perfect. So Paul writing in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, says this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace 
from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These verses contain the foundations for a wonderful, meaningful, fulfilling life. And we've begun looking at them. Foundation number one, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here this morning. I've reviewed them before. Foundation number one was my posture before Christ. And we saw that my posture before Christ must be that of a servant, must be that of a slave. Foundation number two was my position in Christ. And we saw that my position in Christ is that of a saint, someone who has been separated out, someone who has been set apart by God and for God. And as we have followed that trail of what it means to be a saint in Christ Jesus, we began last week looking at the rich theological meaning of what it means to be in Christ, to be in Christ Jesus. That little phrase, in Christ Jesus, is really the commonest way that the New Testament refers to a Christian the way it refers to a follower of Christ. A Christian is someone who is in Christ Jesus. And Paul uses that phrase, in Christ Jesus, or its equivalent, 164 times in his letters. And that means church, understanding what it means to be in Christ is absolutely indispensable to understanding the New Testament and it is absolutely indispensable to understanding what it means to be a Christian. To be in Christ means simply that I am insolubly united with Him. Nothing can break that. It means I am inseparably joined to Him. It means I am intimately connected to Him so that His life Watch this. His life flows into my life. It flows through my life. It encompasses my life so that my nourishment in life, my energy for life, my strength in life, my direction as I go through life comes from and out of the very life of Christ as he lives his life out through me. This is what it means to be in Christ. This is why it is never enough just to be in church. You can be in church and not be in Christ. You can be in a lot of religious activity and not be in Christ. You can be in the know and have all of the theological answers to all of the theological questions and still not be rooted, grounded, established in Christ. And here was the big idea from last time that we talked about. We sort of closed with this last time. This big idea of what it means to be in Christ, and it is simply this. When I am in Christ, everything that is true of Him changes everything that is true of me. And if everything that is true of him is not changing, doesn't mean we're all there yet, but it is not in process of changing everything that is true for you, then you have not understood 
what it means to be in Christ. You have not understood what it means to be a Christian. And because everything that is true of Christ changes everything that is true of me, it means that because he's holy, I'll be holy. Because he's righteous, I will be righteous. Because he is forgiving, I will be forgiving. Because he is merciful and loving and self-sacrificing, I will be merciful and loving and self-sacrificing. And because his greatest desire was to do his Father's will, then my greatest desire must be to do my Father's will. That's what it means to be in Christ. Everything that is true of Christ changes everything that is true of me if I am truly in Christ. Now, we could spend weeks, probably months, looking at all that it means to be in Christ. And we just don't have time to do that if we're going to get through the book of, of Philippians. But I want us to look this morning at three things, critical things, crucial things. Could we say other things? Yes. Could we go to other passages? Absolutely. But these three, I believe, are some of the most basic, critical truths that I want us to camp out on for a few minutes this morning. These three things that should be true will be true, indeed must be true in your life and my life if I am truly in Christ. Here's number one. Being in Christ, if I am in Christ, being in Christ brings ultimate satisfaction in my life. Being in Christ brings ultimate satisfaction in or into my life. Church, I, we live in a world that is grasping for contentment. It is groping to find some satisfaction, fulfillment, meaning, and purpose in life. And too many people in the world, and unfortunately too many People who would say they are Christians look for that satisfaction, maybe in a specific career, or they look for it in a particular relationship that they desire, or they look for it in a certain amount of money that they may be able to earn, or they look for it in the approval of this person or that group, or they look forward in a hundred different things. And for that reason, much of our focus in life, even as believers sometimes, is on what we don't have. And so we say things like, oh, if I just had this or that, life would be great. If I could just be this or that, life would become Wonderful. All my problems would be solved. Everything would be just great. But I'm lacking this thing in my life. I'm lacking this person in my life. I have this void in my life that is keeping me from satisfaction, that is keeping me from fulfillment in life. Well, I want you to look at a verse this morning that ought to knock your socks off. It ought to cause you to sit back and stop and take a deep, deep breath. It is Colossians 
chapter 2, found in Colossians chapter 2, verse 10. This is J.B. Phillips' translation. I love it. And look at what it says. Your own completeness, your satisfaction, your fulfillment, your completeness is only realized where? In Christ, who is the authority over all authorities, who is the supreme power over all power. Listen, that ought to encourage you tremendously. We're talking about the Christ who is supreme over all things, who is supreme over your, sacrifice, over your circumstances, who is supreme over your relationships, who has all authority in heaven and on earth, and he brings you completeness. That word complete or completeness means finished. It means perfect. It means filled up. And here is the idea. The idea is that when I am in Christ, I experience wholeness. I experience completeness. And I can't find it anywhere else because Paul says it is only realized in Christ. This means I lack nothing. Listen to this. Listen to this. It means I don't need anything added to my life because nothing is missing if I am in Christ. Nothing is missing if I am in Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that I can't have legitimate desires or ambitions for certain things that would bring fulfillment, joy into my life and, and would bring glory to God. What it does mean is that when I am in Christ, he is completing me. He is filling me up so that I don't have to look to be filled up by something else. Are you with me? Amen. I don't have to be filled up by anything else. I don't have to search for something else to fill me up. His fullness fills me up. That means when my relationships aren't perfect, guess what? Life can still be wonderful because I am filled up in Christ. When my circumstances aren't perfect, guess what? Life can still be wonderful because I am filled up in Christ. I am completed in Him. Anywhere in my life, where there is incompleteness, anywhere in my life where there is imperfection, anywhere in my life where something is missing, all of that is completed, all of that is perfected, all of that is filled up by Christ when I am in Christ. My completeness in life, my fullness in life comes from His Fullness, And by the way, that is exactly what he said he came to do. John 10.10. 10. Look at it. Jesus said, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. 
contrast, but I have come to give life. Life in all of its what? Fullness, completeness, perfection. Listen, if we really believe that, if we really believe that our fullness in life comes from Christ's fullness, we wouldn't be out there trying to fill all of the voids in our lives and trying to solve all of the problems in our lives in all these other places. It's like Tom Hanks opening all those FedEx packages, searching for something that would get him through, searching for something that would meet his needs. When all along, <laughs> it was right in front of his eyes. If he had just opened it, will you open it? Will you appropriate it? Will you apply it in your life? When I am in Christ, when I am connected to him so that I am drawing my life from his life, I am complete. I am filled up by his fullness. And what is true of him, church, changes everything that is true of me. When I am in Christ, that brings ultimate satisfaction, fulfillment, meaning, purpose, wholeness, completeness into my life. If you got a void this morning, feel like something's missing in your life, you can swim out there and chase down all those packages floating around. I'm telling you, you can do that. You can do it. Students, you can do it. You can chase all that stuff around. It's floating around out there and people are saying, here, this is it, this is it, this is it. Or you can take right what's right in front of you. And you can find your wholeness and your completeness and your fulfillment in Christ. Number two, being in Christ brings radical transformation to my life. Yes, it brings ultimate satisfaction in my life, but it brings radical transformation to my life. Let me tell you something. We are always in danger. We are always in danger of trivializing what it means to be a Christian. We're in danger of trivializing what it means to be saved, what it means to be converted. And, and if you were here last week, you know, I hope we were honest enough to recognize that for way too many people, Christianity consists of saying a prayer, walking down a church aisle, being baptized, joining a church, and it just sort of stops there. And what I want you to realize is when that happens, then Jesus, let me tell you what Jesus becomes when that happens, when that's all that happens. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, becomes a safe, comfortable, predictable, non-controversial, socially acceptable addition to our lives. We're just adding Jesus 
to everything else. We keep doing what we've always been doing, but we've added Jesus. We keep thinking like we've always been thinking, but we've added Jesus. We keep living like we've always been living, but we've added Jesus. Can I let you in on a secret this morning? I want you to listen to this. Jesus Christ did not leave the glory of heaven to come to the depravity of this earth. He did not give up His glory as the eternal Son of God to take on human form and human flesh. He did not relinquish His exalted position at the right hand of the Father to become a servant and a slave He did not hang on a cruel Roman cross. He did not suffer unspeakable anguish and shame. He did not pay the penalty for your sin and my sin. He did not, for the very first time since all of eternity passed, experience the horrific reality of what it meant to be separated from his heavenly Father. He did not suffer a criminal's punishment and die a criminal's death so that he could become a safe, predictable, non-controversial, socially acceptable addition to my life. He did that because he desires and deserves to radically transform all of my life. He is not an addition to life. He transforms life inside and out, top to bottom. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, very well-known verse. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. See, to be in Christ means that you have been radically transformed to the very roots of your being. It does not mean that I have merely mended my ways. It does not mean that I have turned over a new leaf. It does not mean that I have changed some bad habits. It does not mean that I have suddenly embraced a new list of do's and don'ts. Paul is talking about a radical, pervasive, spiritual recreation of my life. And it is significant to me here that At least in Paul's view, creation language is the only kind of language that does justice to this reality of new life in Christ. You are a new creation, and that inevitably leads to a new lifestyle, a new value system, new priorities, new moral standards, new ethical standards. There is no escaping the fact here that Paul is talking about a radical transformation of life. No wonder he calls our undivided attentiveness to this truth by by using the word behold. Do you see that? Behold. All things have become new. Don't miss over that word. Don't don't just gloss over that word. Paul is saying, be stunned. Be very stunned at what God does when you are in Christ. 
He does something brand new. You are a new creation. Stop. Consider this incredible, radical, triumphant truth. London businessman by the name of Lindsay Clegg tells the story of a warehouse property that he was trying to sell. It had been abandoned for years. Vandals had broken out all of the windows. There was trash everywhere. Graffiti had been spray painted all over it. A lot of damage done to the inside walls and plumbing and stuff like that. And as he was taking the prospective buyer through the building, he was very quick to say, listen, I'm going to take care of all this. We're going to replace all the glass. I'm going to have my builders come in. We're going to repair any structural damage. We're going to clean the place up. We're going to take the trash out. And the prospective buyer said, whoa, 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 stop. Forget about the repairs. When I buy this place, I'm going to build something completely different. I don't want the old building. I want the site. Let me tell you something, church. God doesn't want your old life to patch up. He doesn't want your old life to repair, to remodel, to renovate. He wants the site and permission to build something brand new. That's what He wants to do. The old Things have passed away. And if you're still holding on to the old things, if your life is just, you know, I've, 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 I've added Jesus, I've, I've cleaned up a few things, but basically you're still thinking the way you've been thinking, still doing the things you've been doing, still living the way you've been living, you are not in Christ. And if you are not in Christ, my friend, you are not a Christian. Because being in Christ brings radical transformation to my life. Thirdly, finally, quickly. Being in Christ brings total reorientation of my life. It brings a total reorientation of my life. Look at Colossians 3, 3 and 4. Paul writes and he says, For you have died... And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with Him in glory. Paul says, watch this. Don't, don't miss this. These, uh, these first four words. For you have died. You have died. Now, obviously, Paul is not talking about death in a physical sense. The the, the Philippians that he was writing to, and you and me who are hearing his words today, obviously we're very much alive. We hear what Paul has to say. He's not talking about physical death. He's talking about being dead to the world, dead to the world in its ways, dead to sin, dead to self in the sense that those things no longer have power over us to shape the way we think, to shape our values, to shape our life's direction, to shape our life's decisions. We are dead to those things. We have died with Christ because everything that is true of Him changes everything that is true of me. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, speaking of this death, he said, I have been crucified with Christ. Listen to me. Crucifixion 
of the old life, of the old ways, of the old thinking, of the old standards. Crucifixion of those things are inevitable if I am in Christ. The cross is an inescapable part of the Christian life, and it cannot be avoided. We have largely lived under a cross-less Christianity in America. There is no such thing. Let me, let me let you in on another secret. The cross is not just the source of my salvation. Church, the cross is the very shape of my salvation. And it forms me to that shape. That means that my life is a cruciform life. My life becomes cross-shaped and cross-molded because I have died in Christ. I have been crucified with Christ and everything that is true of Him changes everything that is true of me. Now many of us who may be a little older, a little more mature in here may recognize a name I'm going to share with you. Some of you are younger, probably won't. And listen, let me just say, I'm a contemporary worship guy. I, 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 I live... Uh, and move among students at North Greenville University, and I love it, but we lose a lot if we lose the hymns. There's some deep theology there, and there was a lady by the name of Fanny J. Crosby who wrote a well-known hymn, well-loved hymn, called Jesus Keep Me Near the Cross. Any of you heard of it? Very few probably, but Jesus Keep Me Near the Cross. Now, I love that hymn. I love that sentiment. I love what Fanny J. Crosby was trying to say. This is not a criticism of her. But if I were to rewrite that hymn today and make it more theologically correct, I would not entitle it, Jesus, keep me near the cross. I would entitle it, Jesus, keep me on the cross. We don't want to hear that. Jesus, keep me on. Yo, keep me near the cross. Oh, isn't it wonderful? Jesus died for my sins. Keep me near the cross. Well, that's great. But Paul says the prayer of our hearts, yours and mine every day ought to be, Jesus, keep me on the cross. Keep me crucified to self. Keep me dead to self so that I might live for you and you might live your life out in me. Now, some of you are sitting here thinking right now, wait a minute, preacher, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. Talking about all this death stuff. I, I I thought Christianity was supposed to be about Life, didn't you just say a minute ago that one of the marks of being in Christ is that it brings ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment to life? Now you're talking about death. Let me let me let me let me fill you in. (laughs) Let, 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 Let me let me give you something that might help you. When Jesus Christ or when the Word of God speaks to us and it says that we have died, it is critically important for you to understand that Jesus is not asking you to die so that you have no life left. That is not what He is asking you to do. He is not asking you to die so that you have no life left. He is asking you to die so that He can give you His life and when He gives you His life, it will be a life you can do something with. It'll be a life that makes a difference. The best illustration. I know of this truth. 
is found in the life of a man by the name of Moses that we read about in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 3. Remember, Moses was out there in the middle of the desert by himself, minding his own business, tending his sheep. He was a shepherd, you know, not bothering anybody. Life was good in the neighborhood. You know, just go to work, come home, eat, go to sleep, get up, go to work. You know, just life's good, life's fine. When all of a sudden, the gall, God speaks to him out of the burning bush, and he says, Moses, I've got a job for you. You're to leave where you are, and you're to go back into Egypt, and you're to go before Pharaoh, and you're to bring my people out of their slavery in Egypt. And Moses said, I can't do that. I got stuff. To, I mean, look at these sheep. He's going to take care of these sheep. I got a family. How's this going to work out? Besides, I can't do it anyway. And he began to make all these excuses. God, I'm nobody. You know, I'm nobody. They're not going to take me seriously. I, I can't speak well. You know, uh, I'm old. Nobody's going to take me seriously. God, I can't do this. I can't do it. So in Exodus chapter 4, verse 2 one of my favorite stories in Scripture, God gives Moses an, a little object lesson. And he asked him a question. He said, Moses, what is that in your hand? What was it? Do you remember? It was a rod. It was a, it was, it was a staff. And Moses said, well, it's, it's, it's a rod. And God said, okay, Moses, throw it down. Now, I want to ask you a question. Why did, why, why did God tell Moses to throw down that rod? Have you ever thought about that? Kind of an odd thing to do. Why, why, why would God ask him to throw down the rod? I want you to think about it. That rod really represented everything in Moses' life. It was a symbol of who Moses was as a shepherd. In fact, it was his shepherd's staff. He'd been out on the mountain tending sheep when God called to him out of that burning bush. So that rod represented who Moses was. It represented his vocation. It represented his livelihood. It represented his security. The man went nowhere without it, and God said, Moses, throw it down. So Moses finally threw it down. You remember what happened when he threw it down? Anybody. On well, Sunday School 101. What happened when he threw it down? Turned into a snake. A venomous viper so that Moses ran from it for his life. Trying to get away from it as, as quick as he could. And then you remember what God said? Hey, Moses, pick it up. I love it. I can imagine Moses thinking, oh, Wait a minute, God. I, I thought, I know I didn't, but I thought I heard you say, pick it up. God said, yeah, I did. Pick it up. Here's Moses dancing all around, trying to get away from this thing. He's saying, God, I'm not into picking up snakes, man. That thing, could, that thing might bite me. God, that thing could kill me. And God said, pick it up, Moses. I know you're scared. Pick it up. I know picking up snakes wasn't part of your plan for the day, but pick it up. I know this wasn't on your agenda, your bucket list. 
I understand it's the last thing you want to do, Moses, but pick it up. So Moses, I think very timidly, probably, went down and picked it up. And what happened when he picked it up? Do you remember? Turned back into a rod again. But that's not the most significant thing that happened. If you look at Exodus chapter 4, verse 20, got the verse there for you. You will see that between the time Moses threw down his rod and picked it up again, its name changed. It is no longer called in Exodus chapter 4, verse 20, the rod of Moses. It is now called what? The rod of God. Moses took that rod and he went into Egypt and he stood before Pharaoh and he said, let my people go. He held out that rod and the waters of the mighty Nile River turned to blood. He held out that rod and impenetrable darkness covered the land. He held out that rod and devastating plagues ravished the nation. He held out that rod and let me tell you, Moses absolutely controlled the agenda in Egypt. He held out that rod and the people of God followed him out into the desert. They came to the Red Sea and they turned around and they saw Pharaoh and his army coming and they said, what are we going to do? The Egyptians are going to kill us. But Moses, knowing he was not the man he used to be since he threw down his rod, since he threw down his shepherding, since he threw down his safety and his security, since he threw down his very life, Moses held out that rod over the waters of the Red Sea and he said, don't be afraid, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And when he did that, God's word says the waters of the Red Sea parted, God's people crossed over on dry land. Church, that is what God is about. And that is what he wants to do with your life and my life. He wants to radically and totally reorient our lives so that we die to self and live for him. And he's saying to you today, will you throw down your life? Will you lay down your life so that you can pick it up again? Because when you pick it up again, It'll be something I can do something with. It'll be something that makes a difference. That's what Moses did. And that's what Paul is calling the Philippians to do. And that is what he is calling you and me to do. Listen to me this morning. If you are determined to hang on to your life at all cost, I can promise you, you're going to lose it. That's what the Word of God says. Whoever wants to keep his life will lose it. Jesus said, whoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. If you will throw it down and lose it for me, if you will die to yourself, then you will find out what real life is about because when you throw your life down and pick it up again, it won't be the same life anymore. It'll be a life I can do something with. It'll make a difference for you and in the lives of everyone around you. Some of you here this morning been in church a long time. 
But it's not about being in church. It's about being in Christ. And some of you here this morning for the very first time need to throw down your life. Not because God doesn't want you to have a life, but because He wants to give you His life. And if you will throw down your life and let Him give you His life, then when you pick that life up again, it will not be the same life anymore. That's what God wants to do this morning. He wants to absolutely, totally reorient your life from self-centeredness to God-centeredness. Are you looking for ultimate satisfaction in life? Do you know that your life has been radically transformed? And have you allowed God to totally reorient your life toward Him this morning? That's what it means to be in Christ. Nothing less than that. Again, I'm glad you're in church. We're not talking about being in church. Are you in Christ? I want you to bow your heads with me this morning as we pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this time. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You for how it speaks, that it is powerful and living and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce to the very division, the dividing of soul and spirit. Lord, I pray this morning that it will have that effect in us. God, we don't want to be like Tom Hanks. We don't want to be like Chuck Nolan. Swimming around in the sea of life, grabbing packages, opening them, hoping that we'll find our salvation in life, hoping we'll find our fulfillment in life, meaning, purpose, whether it be in career or money or relationship or whatever it is. And we're opening all of these packages and we're still wasting away on the inside. We're emaciated spiritually. We're marooned. We're destitute, cut off from the life that we all long to have. Oh God, this morning, may we not hesitate, not a minute, not a millisecond, to take the step you would have us take this morning. That we would never be content with being in church. That the passion of our heart and our mind and our soul and our strength would be to be in Christ. Rooted in Him, grounded in Him, drawing our nourishment from Him, our strength from Him, our direction for life from Him. Finding ultimate satisfaction in Him. Completeness that is found in Him alone. Allowing you, Lord, not to remodel us, reshape us, that old life, patch it up some way, but radically transform us into that new creation so that you can take our lives and bend them and reorient them. Help us to throw them down today. Throw our lives down. Die today, Lord, that we might be resurrected to this new life. As you live your life out in us is our prayer. In Jesus' name, would you stand? We're going to sing, give thanks. I hope what we've talked about today is a reason for thanksgiving in your life and in your heart.
But we need to give thanks than more than just with our words. We need to give thanks this morning with our lives. And if you would come this morning and say, God, I thank you for who you are and what you've done. And I respond to your word to me today. This altar is open if you need to come and kneel. I'm here to pray with you. Staff is here to encourage you. There, there are counselors here that can meet with you. If you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you know in your heart something is not right, when you lay your head down on your pillow at night, there is this nagging thought that will not go away, that something is wrong, then would you come this morning and let Christ fill that void? If you need to rededicate your life, if you need to just simply say, Lord, I throw my life down, however he speaks to you this morning, as we sing right now, would you come as God speaks to you?